ask you to say the compliments till after that song, Pastor Ron. I, I'm uh, in the back crying here in that last song. Uh, like, I think I, I almost want to ask Pastor Ryan to sing that song every Sunday. I mean, that is just so, it paints such a powerful, powerful picture of that sacrifice of Jesus, the man of sorrows that, that Ryan and the worship team led us with. And it, it begins to put things in perspective, I guess, why, why we come together on church, why, why we go through this ordeal, why we gather, why we, why we sing and all that kind of stuff. And it's so powerful. You know, one of the things that I um, often pray and ask God is, um, you know, sometimes as we, as we get to know something more and more, you begin to take things for granted. You, you begin to enter a relationship. I, I'll be honest enough to admit to you as, as a husband and, and Courtney, my wife, there becomes times in our relationship that, that I can take her for granted, right? Because I know her, we've grown closer, and, um, and that's, that happens in relationships, doesn't it, right? You, you know, that can happen in our own Christian walk, too, where, where we, we're, we're close with God, we know God, we've been around God, we've, we've seen Jesus, but then we begin to take that relationship for granted. And we begin to forget about some of those things, um, Two or so weeks ago, we, we, we preached, or I preached out of John 3.16. One of those verses that I, as a little kid, by the, the first verse I ever memorized was John 3.16. And it's quick off the tongue, and we can say it, we know it. But how often do we take the time to just dwell on that and to think about that? And just like that song that Ryan led us in worship this morning, to just dwell on the cross and what that meant and that sacrifice of a Savior power there is there, what, what love there is there that, that we so often take for granted in the busyness of our lives, we forget about it. Uh, it's so amazing. So Pastor Ryan and the worship team, thank you guys for the great reminder. Um, and as I try to collect my thoughts and my emotions, I'll try and pledge through the message this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4. Last week we ended... Uh, the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And, and so this week we're going to continue. We're going to chapter 4. Now we're going to do a little bit something different. We're going to skip a good chunk of John chapter 4. And the only reason we're doing that is the first Sunday, for those of you who are here, the first Sunday at Redemption Hill in October, um, the very first message that I preached was the, the story about the woman to well. And so we're going to skip over that because we just recently talked about it. And but I want to just kind of give, paint the picture of what's going on here that leads into this morning's story. So Jesus and his disciples begin to travel, and um, they go to Samaria. And, and, and Samaria was this village, these people, the Samaritans, um, they, they were considered, um, the, the Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Okay? This is, this, this is uh, you know, butting heads. They both despised each other. They both hated each other. Uh, the Jews viewed the, the Samaritans as half-breeds. Uh, they had intermarried. Um, they, they did not like them. The, the Samaritans were not allowed into the temple, so they began to create, they built their own temple and began to have their own um, religious rules and laws and uh, things of that nature. And so you have this, this big um, battle between the Jews and the Samaritans. And, and so the Jews, when they would go to Jerusalem, they, they would walk around. They would, they would travel around Samaria in order to avoid it at all costs. And Jesus, um, it's interesting, I love in, in the beginning of John chapter 1, he's, it says that 
that Jesus had to go to, to Samaria. Um, and it paints a beautiful picture. That, you know, obviously, Jesus didn't have to, but he did. He, he went to Samaria. He, he didn't avoid it. He went right to it. You know, it, it paints a beautiful picture about how, how, how um, that we are all considered um, children in God's eyes. There's, there's no black, there's no white, there's no rich, there's no poor. None of that matters to God. We all have access to Jesus. Um, he meets this woman at the well. Um, she is, for lack of better words, she's a train wreck. She's like in her fifth. Um, she's been married five times. She's, she's not even married to this guy. She's living with him. She's living completely in sin. She's going to the well at a time in the day, middle of the day, when the women don't even go to the well. Because nobody wants to be around this lady. Not, the Samaritans themselves don't even want to be around her. She's an outcast of the Samaritans. Samaritans outcast of the Jews. Jesus comes, finds the woman at the well, and he brings her living water. Beautiful picture. She, she sees it. You have this discourse going between the two of them, uh, back and forth. Jesus is patient with her, and finally the light bulb turns on. She gets it. She understands, accepts Jesus as her Savior, and she runs back to the village, and then she brings the people back to meet Jesus. Awesome story. So these people, um, these half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews, come running to Jesus. And the Bible tells us, and we're going to see it, pick it up here in verse 43, that he spends two days there in Samaria. And um, awesome thing, you know, people are getting saved to the point where, you know, it says the whole town comes to know Jesus. And so that's the backdrop. That's the part that we, we skipped over. In the midst of that, let me just point one other thing out. We talked about when I prayed at the group this morning before church. As convicting as the woman at the well story is for me, and, and, and that passage, that, that story, um, has, has probably meant more to me. God's used that story, the woman at the well. Um, it revolutionized, revolutionized my life, I believe. Um, it's the, probably the, the single strongest passage of Scripture that God's used in my personal life in the last three years. Um, it changed my perspective on ministry. It changed my perspective on people. Um, part of it was the woman at the well, but, but what, what really took my knees out was as the woman and Jesus are ending their conversation, the disciples come back, and they're completely confused because they see Jesus talking to this woman. The woman runs, tells the city, and then Jesus sits the disciples down and has a talk with them. And what became so convicting is the disciples are upset. They're trying to give him food because they, 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 they think he's, he's hungry and he's tired and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus' temperament had changed. You know, when, when they left, he was tired, he was hungry, thirsty. They come back, he's energized. And they can't figure out what's going on. And Jesus, they're, they're, they're focused on food and like most guys, right? They're focused on food and food alone. And Jesus sits them down and he corrects them and and he tells them that, that they're focusing on the wrong things. They're, they're fo- focusing on literal bread and water. And he's talking about eternal bread and water. And he paints this beautiful picture as he tells the disciples, look, the fields are white with harvest. We don't know this for, for certain, but, but many speculate that as, as Jesus makes this claim that the fields are white with harvest, the woman begins returning with these people from Samaria and, and, and they're walking up behind him in their white robes. And the reality is, the challenge to us today, the challenge th- th- that I tremble with, is that we are located in an area where the fields are white with harvest. 
in a community in northeast Tallahassee where the fields are white with harvest, in a city of Tallahassee, in a state of Florida, in a country of the United States, in the world that we live in, it is white with harvest. And what a reminder that Jesus tells his disciples that the team that he has collected, the team that that will turn the world upside down, those 12 people, and he says, guys, the fields are wet with harvest. Let's get our attention on what we need to focus on, and let's go. And so that's the backdrop of the story. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 4, verse 43 says here, after the two days he had prepared, or he departed to Gal- for Galilee. So Jesus went to the well, talked with all the people in Samaria. He's leaving now, okay? So two days, he's left. Verse 44 says, uh, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So let's just park here for a quick second. He comes back, and it's interesting because you see in verse 44, he he says, um, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus is returning to his hometown area, area where he grew up, okay? General area where he had grown up. So he makes that statement, and the next statement is, um, as he gets there, they're all welcoming him. I don't know if you're me, but if you're like me, but you see that, it doesn't seem like it, it fits, does it? He's saying, you're not going to be welcome at home, but he's coming home, and they're throwing a welcome party for him. See, what Jesus is trying to relay to us through John in this passage of Scripture is he understood what was going on. He understood that this welcome home was superficial. See, the reason they're welcoming Jesus back home is he's beginning to, to gain some notoriety because of the miracles, because of the things that he had done. These people, the Jews, this area that he was returning back home, remember, they, during Passover, they'd always travel up to Jerusalem. So they saw Jesus in Jerusalem, right? They, they, they saw the Jesus flipping tables, right? They, they, they also, and we're going to find out in a second, he's going back home to where he did his first miracle. Who remembers what the first miracle was? Water into wine. So they'd seen Jesus do this stuff. So he's, he's getting a little bit of a following. He's doing, performing all these miracles. And so it's almost this little welcome home party for Jesus. But he sets the stage saying, in all honesty, he's not truly welcome. They're welcoming home because they want to see what the next magic trick is. The next thing he's going to do, not because he's a savior. So he comes back home to Galilee, to Canaan. Verse uh, 46 says, And he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water into wine, his first public miracle. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this royal official, a man of great influence, a man of great wealth, a member more than likely a a part of King Herod's court. He's got a son here that's very, very sick. He hears that Jesus is in Canaan. He leaves Capernaum, his home, travels to Canaan. He's got some other business to do, but he goes and finds. The Bible tells us that he went to Jesus. 
That's key. If, if, if I were you, I would encourage you to underline in your Bible, he went to Jesus. He pursued Jesus. That's not necessarily uncommon, I don't believe. Many of us, when we find ourselves in d- difficult situations, if we come from a church background, if we have a faith, then we often, in the midst of those valleys of life, we turn to Jesus, don't we? We go to Jesus. This royal official went to Jesus. He sought Jesus out. His son is ill to the point of close to death. It's interesting when you find certain times in life, different situations, titles don't mean a whole lot, do they? I mean, the reality is, as influential as he was, as wealthy as he probably was, the title of a royal official, knowing Herod and being part of his court, meant very little when your son is close to death. And so he goes to Jesus. And he asks Jesus to come down and heal his son. Come down meaning, can you come home? Can you, can you come to Capernaum and heal my son? And when we read Jesus' response, at first we, we believe it comes across as somewhat of a harsh statement. Uh, and, uh, sorry, in, in verse 48 he says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Seems kind of harsh for Jesus, doesn't it? This guy's, I mean, he's in a, a low part of life. Um, he, he, he is frantically finding Jesus. He's probably exhausted every avenue, seen whatever specialist, whatever doctor, whatever they could do, he's done. His son's not responding. His son's dying. He's scared. He's freaking out. So he finds Jesus probably as a last resort. He runs to him and he's trying to find him. And Jesus' response to him is, you're only going to believe me if I do signs and wonders, aren't you? Jesus makes this statement that we have to understand that it wasn't necessarily just directed at this royal official. In the midst of this, the midst of this going on, it probably begins to draw a crowd. This royal official, although his name's not given in the Bible, would have certainly been known in this community. More than likely, this, this royal official was um, a Jewish aristocrat. In the Bible, we would refer to, we'd see these um, listed as Sadducees. See, that it, and it, what's interesting about these Sadducees is, is they believed that, that God would not intervene in human affairs. That they believe that, that we, as individuals, determine our own fate. And whatever fate we, we got was what we deserved, whether it was wealth or illness or whatever. And so for this royal official, for this more than likely Sadducee, to come running to Jesus, begging and pleading for a miracle, would have begun to caused some eyebrows to be raised and people to look. And I believe when, when Jesus makes that statement, he's, he's, yes, talking to the official, but he's also talking to the crowd. And he's saying, you're only going to believe me if I perform signs and wonders. 
He's telling them that, that, that your, your faith, your belief, is only as deep, will only last as long as I keep giving you things. I'm, I'm sad to say that, that many times in my own life, I find myself in that same position. So it's easy for me to run to God when in times of need. Wanting Him to work out a miracle in my life, in my family, and whatever the circumstance may be. Jesus says, hold up. Hold up. Let's look at the big picture here. And so I don't believe it was necessarily a harsh statement. It was Him trying to make a point. Verse 49 says, And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's interesting, again, because this royal official now sees the power of Jesus has limitations. See, he he believes that Jesus has to be near his son, the same room as his son. He probably believes that there has to be some physical touch between Jesus and his son for his son to be healed. See, he's trying to get Jesus to come home. And I I love the picture that that we see here. See, because this is, is something I believe that all of us as Christians will battle throughout our lives. Not today, not tomorrow, but for all of our life. It's this battle, this clash of wills. This, the human expectation versus the sovereignty of God. And so this royal official is coming and he's begging and he's pleading with God, please, Jesus, please come heal my son. Come home with me. Come to Capernaum. And Jesus I find it interesting that um, as we read this and we see this, the royal official is giving Jesus directions. He's telling him how to solve the problem. This story is kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's somewhat familiar to another story. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew um, chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, um, something somewhat similar. Jesus performs a different miracle. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, says that when he had entered Capernaum, interesting, the same hometown as this royal official, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. This Jesus saying, I, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you with No one in Israel have I ever found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in the palace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at the third turn, Jesus said, Go, 
Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Somewhat similar circumstance, but notice there's a difference between these two men's faith. The centurion comes to Jesus and says, listen, I have a servant that's paralyzed, dying. He tells Jesus the circumstance. He offers no advice. He offers no um, direction, nothing. No instruction, nothing. Jesus says, I I will come and heal him. And with great humility, this Roman centurion says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to even come to my home. Stories that seem very similar, but faith's much different. The gentleman, the royal official that we read about in, in, Matthew, or in, in John chapter 4, he's trying to give God direction. Pleading with him to come. And these are the steps that you need to take. I think in my own life, how often we do the same thing. How often we give God direction. We go to him in prayer and in times of need. God, here's, here are my bills. They're, they're lying on the table. What are you going to do about it? I need you to provide for this. God, this is a tremendous business opportunity. I need your blessing by Monday morning. One that Ryan, I know, has often prayed is, Lord, she's a pretty girl. I'm single, she's single. Let's make it happen. Amen. Right? We, so often, if you're with me, if you're anything like I am, even when I plead God for help, I'm giving Him the directions on how I need it done, on how it should take place, the timetable it should occur. The Roman centurion did none of that. He simply believed to the point where the Bible tells us Jesus was marveled by his faith. The royal official, begging, pleading, is giving Jesus directions. Jesus, however, responds. Verse 50 and says, Go, your son will live. It's interesting. It follows up and says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What's interesting about that statement is Jesus just says, Listen, go. Your son will live. And it follows up with the man believed the word that Jesus said. What's interesting is that word belief, belief, in the Gospel of John, is a crucial, crucial thing. It's the framework of the whole entire Gospel, belief. John will repeatedly go back to belief, 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 belief. In this passage here, that that verb, believe, whenever John writes about it, when there's no direct object attached to it, he's always referring to a saving belief, a saving, trusting belief in God, in Jesus. However, in this example, there's an object of attachment. This royal official believed the word of Jesus. This isn't a saving, trusting, 
salvation belief. He just believed what Jesus said. It reminds me that um, belief isn't always enough. Belief in God. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. I am continually reminded, and I, I, I say it often, but so often America is referred to as a Christian nation, isn't it? And, and most people that you talk to will tell you that they believe in God. It's not necessarily a huge claim in our society. But there's a difference between believing in God and trusting in Him. And that's the struggle that this man is battling. That struggle, as we said earlier, of human expectations versus sovereignty of God. What we expect, what we want, versus God's perfect plan. I don't care how strong of a Christian you are, I don't care how deep of a faith you have, that will be a continual battle in your life. Because we are wired to think we know better. Those of us who are parents, we see it in our own children. Sometimes our kids can be great reminders to us into our own spiritual walk. So this man, and also something in your, in your mind, as much begging and pleading as, you, as this, this royal official did, you would think as soon as Jesus gives him the word, he would run home. Wouldn't, he would run home to verify this. Capernaum, Canaan, it's 18 to 20 miles. Okay, so today, that would take us only a few minutes to get there, wouldn't it? Bible day is a little bit different. This was before V8s, pickup trucks, and Lamborghinis. Okay? Six hours by foot, two hours by chariot. This man is a wealthy individual, so certainly he had his chariot. So if I'm the man, if my, my son's dying, and Jesus gives me the word that he's been healed, I believe I would run in my chariot and hightail it home to verify. But what's interesting is as we read the rest of this passage, that's not what the man does. And so we need to give this royal official some credit here. He goes on further here in, this, in the passage and says, um, 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them at the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. Yesterday, the seventh hour would have been one o'clock in the afternoon. The previous day. So when Jesus basically told the royal official, your son is well, he's been healed, go about your business, he continued the business that he had to do and then began to go home. As he's traveling home, his servants come and find him and say, your son's recovering, he's getting better, he's been healed. The official said, well, when did this happen? When, when did he change? It was the seventh hour yesterday. And I love this, I love this. Verse 51 says, The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And notice this next statement. And he himself believed. And he himself believed in all his household. 
Notice no object. First one, believed the word of Jesus. Believed what Jesus said. Belief in words and actions and a hopeful miracle. This is a belief, a life-changing belief, a trusting salvation in Jesus as a Savior. And notice what happens. It didn't just affect him, did it? The whole household. The whole household. I um, was very excited this past week, Thursday night. We began our men's Bible study. There was about 10 or so of us there that evening, and um, it was a great study. At the very end, we kind of just kind of started talking about little bit things of what we studied and going forward. And I tried to challenge some of the guys. And my father-in-law was teaching the, the, the class, and so I wasn't instructing him. But I have a hard time sitting through anything and not adding my two cents. Um, and I tried to challenge the men. And I, and I reason before that was as this week as I was preparing the message, I, I, I was continually being struck with this idea that the father believed and then the household followed. Um, guys, as, as, as men, and this is not to come across as being sexist or anything, but men, I believe that God's ordained us to be leaders within our family. I believe that's scriptural. I believe God calls us to lead our families spiritually. I, I see way too often in life, you can see it in our society, that, 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 that men, we have abandoned that post in many occasions. It's unfortunate. I, I know that we live busy lives, and I'm not telling you that you sacrifice everything and you don't go to work. You don't, do, you, you don't go to work at all and you stay on, at your bed and you read your Bible all day long. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying I believe that, that, that God has put us in the place that we lead our families, especially in the area of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our wives look to us for that. Our children look to us for that. Those of you who are blessed with grandchildren, your grandchildren look up to you for that. And the impact that it has, think of Joshua when he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and men, my challenge to you and something that I pray to God that I abide in as well is that we become and we are the spiritual leaders in our family. Listen, God did not create families to have one lone ranger, that the one person does everything and, and all that. I'm, 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 what I'm saying, though, is, man, we need to lead spiritually. We need to set the tone. And I love when we see this. We see this idea that because of the example of the father, the whole family believed, right? This family did not have the interaction with Jesus. It was the father. They responded because of the Father. And I hope we follow this royal official's example, that we be the spiritual leaders, that we help lead, that we, that we honor our wives, we support our wives, we love our wives, we, we love our children, but at the end of the day, we do all that to point them to Jesus and see how God blesses our family. One of the things I believe that 
I struggled with most this week um, was this idea, though, of what the Roman official did, the, the royal official, by giving God instructions in life. I, uh, I'm going to try and be real transparent with you. I remember in my own life um, wrestling with God over several things. I remember, uh, as I've shared with some before, that, that I believe God called me in high school to come and, be, go, and to go into full-time Christian ministry to be a pastor. I, I believe that with all my heart. I was about 16 years old. I remember being at a church camp. Later in life, I made a lot of poor decisions. Went off to higher college and, and out and just made poor decisions. I um, turned my back on that calling and pursued other things. God's faithful. I love God because God always pursues. You know, the great reminder is the parable of the lost son. You know, as, as we turn back to God, you know, the moment we turn back to God, we realize that he's there in our face already with arms open wide, ready to grab us, embrace us, and love us. Welcome us back home. No questions asked. And so I remember going through this and, and this long journey that God put me and then as Courtney became my wife, we began going on this journey uh, and, and God changed where I was going, reminded me of a call that he placed in my life as a 16-year-old. Now sometimes in life we think, well, when we do the noble things, we do the things that we think God wants us to do, then it should equate with all these blessings. And so I remember having these ideas, these thoughts, these dreams um, of what it would look like and, and, and telling God, well, if I'm going to do this, then you need to do this, this, and this. So I'll say yes under these conditions, under these parameters, much like the royal official. Here's the deal, God. I need you to do this, this, and this. I remember... Um, and what has become my life verse, and I, I sign almost every email, almost every documentation, is Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. If you've never read those verses, look them up in the Bible, underline them, highlight them. Maybe they'll be a blessing to you like they've been a blessing to me. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, for my ways your ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. And it was a great reminder to me that all my ideas, all my plans, all the things I thought were right paled in comparison to what God wanted in my life. I surrender. Courtney and I prayed for months, for months, probably a few years about, about selling our business and pursuing ministry full-time. We do that. We, 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 we take that step out in faith. And we're not going to get into all the details, but I'll tell you this. Almost from the moment we did that, it was bump after bump after bump after bump. I mean, within weeks of, of us deciding to sell the business, um, I come home from work and Courtney tells me she's pregnant. And all of a sudden I begin to start second-guessing myself. Lord, I'm having a hard enough time providing for three kids. We have a fourth kid coming. Oh, So if I'm going to do this, Lord, then you need to provide this income too to support this. provide this avenue to do it so we begin to do something and, and, and we go and we begin to work on staff at a church and within weeks of that things begin to collapse and it was just a, 
a bad situation. Not the people. I don't believe it was necessarily the people, although there were some hurt feelings and things like that, but it was God working and intervening through these things. I was too dumb to see it. I'm too worried about my plan, the directions that I gave God. And I was reminded in the midst of this, going back to a study, I was reading in Genesis about Abraham. And here Abraham, God had spoke to Abraham, Abram at that time. And he said, listen, you and your family, you pack up, you leave everything, and you move away. And I'm going to provide you with a family. I'm going to give you a son. And one day you become the father of all nations. And so Abram does exactly what God says. He packs everything up. He leaves. 20 years pass. No child. He's becoming an old man. God comes to him, Genesis chapter 15, comes to him in a vision. He's asleep in his tent and has this vision, and God begins to promise himself. And this is why I love the Bible, because the Bible tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We see the good things, we see the tough things, we see the struggles of people. God comes to Abraham, begins to give him these promises, and Abraham, in Chad's version, says, Time out, God, I'm done. I have done everything that you've asked me to do. Twenty years have passed, I have no children. Everything you've asked me to do has led to misery. I've uprooted my family, my wife. I've gotten rid of all my business. We've gone, we've traveled, we've been nobody. God, I'm done, God. I'm, if this is what it is, I'm done. And Jesus, in the story, in the passage in Genesis, God takes Abraham out of the tent. Because you see, Abraham could only see as, as high up as that ceiling of the tent was. And he takes him out of the tent. He tells him, look at the sky. Look at the stars. See, you can only see as high as the tent, but I can see beyond the stars. It was such a reminder to me my view is limited. I hope and I pray and I beg God to ignore my instructions. Because my human expectations pale in comparison to a sovereign God. He knows better than I know. He's much stronger than I am. He is much wiser than I am. The ridiculous thing about it is, in my mind, I can only see as high as the tent. But he has hopes and dreams that go beyond the stars. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know where your struggles are. But I feel 100% confident that everyone in this room wrestles with the same thing that I wrestle with. My human expectation versus a sovereign God. Yes, there's struggles. And yes, like the Roman or the royal official, I will turn to God. I will go to God. But it's usually with strings attached. What happens? What happens in our life when God doesn't give us all of our 
expectations. What happens in our life when God doesn't follow our directions and our advice? How will we deal with that? Here, the royal official was told, go, your son's alive. The royal official believed Jesus. His faith was strong enough to say, okay, you said it, I believe it, it's true, I'll go. My hope and my prayer, selfishly for myself, but also for you, is that we do the same thing. That we go to God first in the good times and the bad times. But rather than follow the official's faith of giving directions, we follow the example of the Roman centurion and just say, here it is, God. I don't know how, but I trust. It's amazing because we see so many sides of Jesus Christ in this gospel. The last time he's in Canaan, he's performing a miracle at a celebration. Marriage had just occurred. Beginning of life. Big old party. Everyone's excited and, 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 and ready to go. And here we have Jesus in a life of devastation. Dealing with a man who in the back of his mind is probably beginning to make funeral arrangements. That ha- that's life. We all will have those high points. We all will have those low points. doesn't matter what title you have. doesn't matter how big your bank account is. doesn't matter how big your home is. doesn't matter how fast your car is. There's nothing wrong with those things, but if we put our trust and our faith in those things, it won't matter. Because at the time, we hit those difficult moments that will mean nothing. How will we respond in those moments? May we be more like the centurion than the official. But at the end of the day, they both believed. They both had the faith. And I hope and pray that we do as well. Let's pray.